The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. (laughs) It's a date. Hello and welcome to this episode of The Stages Podcast, where we converse with creatives about craft and career. I'm Peter Ayers. As Artistic Director of the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, Paul Dyer leads a dedicated team of musicians and support staff who bring passion and excellence to every performance. Under Paul's direction, the Brandenburg has become one of the most outstanding period instrument ensembles in the world. Paul founded the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra with managing director Bruce Applebaum in 1989, with the Brandenburg's first official concert at the Sydney Opera House. Such ambition and passion drives Paul, and he has led the orchestra from strength to strength. His dedication and enthusiasm inspire the musicians and support team at the Brandenburg as the orchestra grows and innovates, challenges and inspires both audience and performer alike. Paul Dyer, it's lovely to be uh, having this conversation at uh, the Brandenburg headquarters. Thank you, Peter. It's lovely to to share stories and anecdotes. How long have you been at these lovely offices? Well, uh, this is a a nice privileged spot. It's only been a couple of years. Uh, We're here in Mascot, right next door to the main Qantas administration building in Coward Street. Uh, And it had a little story to it, actually. When we were, prior to this, we were living in a beautiful old living. The Brandenburg was housed housed in a a wonderful old home on the top of Edgecliff Hill. So directly opposite the Edgecliff Centre in Sydney. And the house is about 150 years old. So I, I remember a couple of instances where an old lady knocked on the door after she managed to get up the, the front stairs kind of thing because she was in her 90s to tell us that she was born in the house and wow. and then there's beautiful lead lighting and things like that so we transitioned from there to this modern um uh, modern space here in mascot because we were busting at the scenes but basically and also about communication with people um with the administration team in the old office we were uh, it was upstairs, downstairs kind of thing. So because of the shape of the building and the mm-hmm. size of it. Uh, what was beautiful about it was that we had a wonderful music room which had enormous glass doors which went onto a patio. So we can invite people around for Saturday or Sunday night, you know, 30 people just Swire to do a little soiree thing. Yeah. And we could even put champagne out in the... out. In the, they could come directly up the side and in there. But here we have, instead, we have a religious kind of grotto which is a bit strange so for those of you who are wondering what that is we're in a very modern building uh, but this modern building is owned by the Maris fathers so they lease it to us and this floor they they used to have their administration team but they had a chapel uh, so downstairs I should say that the chapel was downstairs and that's the music room at the moment which has of course been deconsecrated and um, you know I painted a, a lovely shade of mauve and you know, a few lime colours and to get away from the whatever it was and uh, the ghosts of the past the ghosts of the past and then moved upstairs to you know the top level let's say 
you know, created a new chapel up there. But uh, just to go one step before that, Peter, while we're on the, the how long have you been here in, in Mascot, the original place of the Bradbury was in fact just my home. So, you know, as one grows in your life, you start something wherever you are located. And that happened to you, just, you know, little space on a desk at home. And then that, um, we made it into another little space in Edgecliff, which was hysterical. There was just uh, the man who started the orchestra with me, Bruce Applebaum. And we had a little kind of typing secretary type person who sat at a reception desk, which we thought was hysterical because this is just the two of us in the room. Uh, and the man who owned the building, who had a tiny glass space down the end, overlooking the back of, of his building, and he smoked cigars. Oh, it was dear. awful. Anyway, so we realised that we had to move out of the cigar space. Here we are. You're celebrating 33 years this year. Is it right? 33? I believe so. I <laughs> not to remember. I guess it's hard when you're young and you're starting an orchestra, but did you ever anticipate that it would grow to this size? Yeah, very good question. Um, I'm a passionate type of person, and I imagine looking back in time there that all I wanted to do was perform the music and start the first period instrument orchestra and choir in Australia. And I wanted to... Yeah, I, I wanted to start something, so I didn't really realise what that meant. You know, at the time, you do things for the moment and for the year, maybe. You don't even think about the, the future. You just let it roll. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I know, you'd, you'd think... I think the same with the podcast. Sometimes you'd think twice, because it becomes a lifetime commitment, you know, a big relationship. Well, one of the most wonderful things about the orchestra and and beginning, well, apart from the name, which our trading name is the Brandenburg Ensemble Limited, uh, that the very first name of the orchestra was in fact the Brandenburg Orchestra of Australia, and then everyone left out the of Australia bit and just called it Brandenburg Orchestra, and then people would say, "Are you German?" naturally yeah. and and then so there was a lot of explanation needed so we kept the trading name and then the name changed bit by bit um over the course of these 33 years we've had various uh high level board meetings about whether we should in fact stay you know change the name again uh to make it a bit whatever but i do remember that i wanted the word baroque in there at, at the beginning but somebody had already taken the name and never used it oh. Uh, so it was protected by law, uh, and we weren't able to to go ahead with that. So um, that was a shame because I want you know the Australian Baroque Orchestra would have been great, or you know some crazy name. But as as I mentioned, you don't think about those things when you're 25 years old, and you just pay your 300 dollars to to the government and and uh, register the name as as the non-profit organisation. So 33 years is a lot of rehearsals. It's a lot of meetings. It's a lot of planning. How do you switch off? Uh, I have two kind of passionate things in my life. The main passion is the sporting side, it's the athletic side to my life. I think that goes back to kind of early school days, but um, I realised that as a very focused mind person for the scholarly side of what I have to do in concentration for playing music... Uh, there's that side, but there's always this, the, the side that people really don't know, especially in the training ground. The training ground for a musician is when you get to a, a level, of, you know, past school kind of thing, where you're studying and going through an undergraduate and then postgraduate, that you really have to practice eight hours a day, depending on the, the nature of the instrument that you play, to be able to, to get to the top of your game. So. A lot of the time is taken up being like an athlete. You're, you've got to maintain the, the standard of, of where you are to be able to keep in a race. So aside, from, so I think I realised that that kind of concentration and focus, um, that I really enjoyed up to kind of three in the morning, I would often practice. And I was in a house that I was able to do that without disturbing people. Uh, that I think the morning part of my life, I remember post that, you know, being age 18, I would enjoy swimming. So 
the swimming part of my life really has has kept throughout my journey and I enjoy I pretty well can rate every major aquatic centre in Australia from touring and and the world in fact um, and and say what pools are excellent and what pools I don't even rate and so that's one and the other one is I love cooking I, I'm not a cook but I love the, the artistry in it and the creation because when it comes to creating food I'm not a creator I'm a total fake <laughs> but i I, I'm a recipe person and I love I love that idea of creating something from words or from a screenshot or a, you know that somebody else has taken the time who's much better than me to be able to give me the ingredients and the way forward and, and I do it and I either pass or fail. It's, it's the burden of the artist, isn't it, that you have to keep creating. And yeah. if you can't practice your art, Very cool. I've spoken to so many people who paint or mm. cook or mm. have a great garden mm. uh, just to express themselves. Yeah. One that, of was, the, that came to the fore in uh, the last two years of the pandemic. Of course, of course yeah. absolutely, for, for most of the world, I imagine. Mm. Uh, but Peter, you've just hit on it. There's a, another lovely thing that I remember in terms of the... my practice and performing stage work as opposed to the artistic director work which was much more um, uh, either solitude or working with a team at the Bradford office to to continue you know keep things happening either in the marketing area the philanthropy area the sponsorship area that you know whatever it is uh, the, the finance and development all of those things the education area that all comes as my role as the artistic director but um when I'm performing and I get home and you're you're completely wired up after performing on a stage at late at night when you have to peak, um, I would often ring and have a conversation with the concert master of the orchestra. In for many years, it was a wonderful woman, Lucinda Moon. Uh, Lucinda was a concert master about uh, fifteen or sixteen years, and she would ring me and say, "What are you doing?" And I say, "I'm scrubbing the bath." And she said, "So am I." And then she'd ring, you know, the next series of concerts and she had, what are you doing? Oh, I'm outside gardening. And then she said, but it's winter and it's freezing. And I said, I know I'm naked. <laughs> you know, it's those kind of extreme extremities that the artist have in order to calm the mind and calm everything right down. Well, swimming would seem the perfect occupation yeah. because it requires a, a rhythm, a, a focus, mm. and a, a chance to be with your thoughts. Yeah, yes indeed. Um, there's the other side of swimming too, which is the motoric rhythm of it, that often I would be able to memorise Italian uh, texts of songs that I had to memorise for a singer, a guest singer that was coming, or when I've got the choir and we're, we're singing in Latin or French or um, a foreign language that I would try and learn while I'm swimming. Uh, and recite and memorize. So it had that kind of effect as well as the kind of switch off one, two, yeah. breathe, three, you know, that kind of thing. Or well, how many strokes have I done on the right to the left? What's your uh, your music taste like? Does it, is it much broader than mm, Baroque? Interesting. What other music do you access? Yeah. Um, to answer that question, I might give you a little snapshot of my world, which was. Uh, been brought up as a pianist since age four, four and a half, let's say, five. Um, and then the piano repertoire is very geared towards, you know, in, in a structural way, going through the periods of music. So, you know, Baroque, classical, romantic, contemporary. They categorise things like that, even in examinations. So when I reached the level that I needed to for the piano, the piano repertoire that had taken over was very, that interested me, was more on the classical Mozart, Beethoven's area to the period after that, which is romantic. So I really enjoyed, believe it or not, playing very romance-style music. Um, I landed with Baroque because uh, of a bit of a long story, but I, I won't necessarily go into that right now, but... Um, the question you asked me was musical taste. The taste. So, yeah, my my baroque taste is for my work. Let's say, 
Um, but when I'm listening to music, my my parents were both musicians. Uh, Dad was a drummer in his spare time, not his main profession, and my mother was a professional pianist and singer. So, but they they worked together in a band. So there was this whole other eclectic part of my life growing up, which was um, everything I suppose you'd say from. Uh, looking back in time, not that that was their period of swing, going into kind of club music to, to whatever you know. But it was saxophones and clarinets and drums and uh, not violins, violas and cellos. <laughs> <laughs> so when I listen to music, I listen now to um, anything but classical, and I listen to chill music a lot, yeah. a lot. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I love chill music. Uh, I think even my f- my favorite Spotify playlist in the car or wherever I am is is called Chill PD, you know Paul Dyer's Chill, and so I just put things that I love and and, and throw it in there. So it's very eclectic. Yeah. What about a, a sound? Do you have a favorite sound? Yeah, um, I remember pushing my way up the front in Newcastle to to watch Lady Gaga in a concert. Um, because I had heard that her piano, she set fire to a piano in the show. Yeah. I thought, maybe I can do that. <laughs> <laughs> and then <clears throat> all of a sudden there was this electronic kind of sound um, that I heard in that concert. And that kind of rewired me to a whole lot of electronica, yeah. um, which is totally away from my business. So for those of you who, who are listening and you don't know who Paul Dyer is, I'm very acoustic, I'm very classical, and in that in that region of music, I'm I'm from the period from 1600 to 1750. I'm very Game of Thrones. I'm very kind of you know that period of afterwards, very Renaissance, very quirky. Um, so my favourite sound would be hmm, the sound of nature, probably first, yeah. Yeah. Uh, because it's soothing and calming and, and organic and organic and, and healing yeah. and, and and real. Um, and then I'd probably say electronica. Right. That comes from dancing too much on, on st- you know, on clubbing in my <coughs> early thirties. Ha ha. Early thirties. <laughs> you mean you stopped? I, I club with myself at home. <laughs> Are you a Sydney boy? I am. I was right. brought up in uh, in West Pimble, uh, and. I remember a, a wonderful moment. This might sound kind of out of place, but I, I suppose it puts it in context for my for my era. But um, when I went to the conservatorium during postgrad, I did a double degree in uh, as a bachelor of music and bachelor of music education. And in the education side, that opened the gates up to you know people who wanted to be teachers, and so teachers came from everywhere. And there was this girl who said. Um, you know, I come from a suburb of Sydney, which I won't say now, but it was wasn't north where I came from. And um, and I said, "Where's that?" And she said, Are "You kidding me? I bet you're from the north." <laughs> and I just remembered that, but I wasn't saying it for any other reason. I I just said, "No, I had a very conservative upbringing, um, and I looked at things in different ways. In fact." My, my piano teacher invited me to her home one day instead of having a lesson at the conservatorium. And I, this might seem strange to say, it definitely will be for anyone under, you know, under 50 years old. But I remember in that home, it was a rambling, enormous, enormous property with a, a big terrace, you wouldn't call it a terrace house, but it, it kind of was, but it was, you know, had room for a family easily yeah. with yeah. four or five children. Um, with a, a back and a front garden, beautiful. And when I walked in, the whole of the interior of the house was white. And I was only ever allowed in to go around the back of the house and, and to go into the, to the back room, which was of course enormous and had two Steinway pianos, one for her and one for the student. So that was the, and that was your way out. But this time I was invited to, she asked me to, to go upstairs to her bedroom and she was fierce and she said don't look at anything and of course I looked at everything you know <laughs> that's what you do when you're a child and um, and when I walked into her bedroom to get whatever she needed me to look to grab from the side table 
she had a pyramid above her bed. And I'm talking about a, 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 a king-size bed. It was probably even larger than a king-size, if that's possible. She probably had a custom-made. And it was a giant you know, pyramid. Just hovering over. Hovering over. Yeah, it was really the size of a, you know, maybe eight foot I'm talking about. And I said, years later, do you know, her name was Nancy, and I said, do you remember uh, you told me to go upstairs and get that book and you told me not to look at anything? Well, I looked at everything. <laughs> no, I didn't say that. I said, you know, that what was it, that pyramid? And she said, my dear, stasis and kinesis and the wholeness of one. And I just walked out of there and immediately, Google, you know, <laughs> what's that? And she just wanted the centre of the pyramid to be right in her heart as she was sleeping. Then the other thing was that I saw my first, she had contemporary art everywhere. So going back to your your observation of where were you born in Sydney, I was born in West Pimble, that was a conservative, so I had, my parents had landscapes and cows on the, on the, on the, on the, walls. <laughs> on the walls. She had pro heart and colour splashing everywhere and condone and, you know, and everything post that. And she dealt a lot with contemporary music as well. So she had colour everywhere in abstract. Um, that was amazing. But she also, I also had my very first glass teapot. So I thought that was fascinating not to have porcelain, but yeah. to be able to see the tea leaves swirl around inside it. Yeah. And that took my fancy. So that's a kind of long way of saying to you, pyramids, glass teapots and art on the wall which were totally different from where I was brought up. Uh, and it opened my world, those three things. The key to, yeah. to open it. Yeah. You were very fortunate, I guess, in having um, parents who were musicians and starting you on the piano at four or mm. five. Did you take to it straight away or did it yeah, frustrate it's very you? Were you good at practicing at, at that age? I suppose the answer to that was I started off with nuns at school when there were nuns at school and I got the slap out of the knuckles thing. Then I moved on to, you know, a series of people. Looking in hindsight, what I would have loved was someone to take me for about five years in that very early stage and really develop my technique as a technician because I was born with musicality it was just I know that it was just inside me so that was easy that was the easy bit what I really needed was someone to guide me as to uh, even now when I see video clips of myself my little finger sticks up in the air and, right. and when I look at a video of myself when I was 18 uh, it was still up in the air so you know someone could have fixed that for me and helped me play faster or whatever. So I kind of went through a series of teachers and um, I loved doodling. I remember destroying one, my parents had two pianos, uh, a grand piano and, and an upright piano and the upright I completely destroyed because I'd heard a song by Elton John and on the side below the keys of the piano, I had got a pen one day or a, or a knife and I decided to make, I wanted to make it an electronic piano, not an acoustic piano. So I, I made all these kind of stops where I could grip my teeth with my tongue and go, ah, yeah, 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 baby, yeah, oh, yeah. You know, I can do that Well, I was Dear listener, I wish you could see these visuals. <laughs> <laughs> so just put your teeth over your bottom lip and you go yeah and screw your nose up in your eyes um fun so i believe uh i loved doodling and i loved i when i was at school i was always labeled by teachers at school as a dreamer um you know all of the report cards would come back and they'd say he's dreaming he's dreaming he's dreaming he's dreaming uh and i it wasn't until i left school that i realized that dream part was actually the creating part of my brain. It was dreaming is a good thing. Yeah, I was I was looking out the window, you know, and and looking at the sky and the colours, rather than the mathematical imprint of something or the pathway. Were you good at maths? 
Because I assume musicians need to be good mathematicians. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I've never really found the answer to that. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> to explain what I do, when I'm reading Baroque music, which is kind of the core of my, uh, my music work, in the Baroque period, you can imagine that there's a, a high and a low, a treble and a bass. Below the bass for the instrument that I play, which is a keyboard instrument called the harpsichord, Below that are a series of numbers that they wrote as a shorthand in the Baroque period. It's called figured bass. And rather like a guitarist who has a, a square and a, and a finger pattern written above their line, I have these numbers. So one would assume that I would be good at mathematics based on that, because I have to be very fast at saying six, five, four, three, two, one, you know, sixty, three. Even though the patterns are similar, I have to be very hot off the mark for that. Um, but I do remember my parents moved me away from at the end of year seven to another school because the school were dragging me out of class all the time and asking me and, and kind of almost making me play for all the musicals and the dramas, uh, things that are happening. And so my, my grades were going down in certain things and one of them was mathematics. And I was uh, in the C class out of ABC for mathematics and I was probably at the bottom of that class so the reason for moving me over was to steer me in the academic line and the sporting line uh, rather than the, the arts line. Uh, yes, instead of STEM it should be STEAM, shouldn't it? Yes. Exactly. Indeed. The answer. So what was your, your music education like at school? Because you know, I'm, like me, I know you agree that music should be a compulsory definitely subject at school because it completes the, the whole human. Yeah. Peter, you know, it's very interesting looking back in time now as, a, as an artistic director of an orchestra and choir and dealing with music in different ways at, at a very high level. But if I, if I bring down the mountain of the pyramid of, of, of what I do and what I, I, I want to do, uh, which is now take the education component of where I started my career with music. Um, I'm looking at young people now and thinking the music education that, that I received is totally different from now. And I look at people like, dare I say it, Macron in, 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 uh, in France, and he's recently over the last couple of years instilled compulsory music education in the whole of France. Mm. Great. Amazing. Amazing, yeah. He's probably, I, I forgive me for not knowing, but he may have done it in drama as well. Yeah. So that was one thing that he saw the value and saw the challenge of how that, on everyday life, how that can add to, um, enhance in, in any kind of way, someone's life. Um, so I forgot the question. <laughs> music education, at music education at school. Yep. So mine was always outside the school. So I studied piano. I had theory. I had musicianship. Um, I went to a private school. So that and the reason why I mentioned that is that uh, say Monday, Wednesday, and Friday were taken up with sport after school. Sorry, say Tuesday, and Thursday, and Saturday morning were taken up with sport. Mm -hmm. That's after school, not during school. And then the other three days were taken up with music, either piano lesson, a theory lesson, a musicianship lesson. Uh, and I remember very often doing sport with my brother and I and sister uh, on a Saturday morning and then mum and dad having him to navigate, like many parents, taking their children around the whole of Sydney or a whole of the city. Um, and then they had to navigate us going to music lessons and I was there for often three hours in the afternoon on a Saturday. So I had a very disciplined life for that. So I think my music education, um, I flourished as a person because of that discipline. Uh, it's like young dancers too. Yes. They spend so much time yes. at the bar. Or, mm. And they have to, to, to accomplish yeah. their, their yeah. dreams. Yeah. yeah, I've often thought about, um, recently I did a course at NIDA in public speaking because you know I had to speak often and I'm a bit of a rabbiter so as you probably even glimpsed by your question and my answer that the answer can be a half now <laughs> but it's and quality it's quality yeah. thank you that's fine <laughs> but I suppose um, I'm always in awe of the news readers you know they have this way of just Asking someone asks a question or in the background and then they will say, 
Today is the end of the world. Fact. Full stop. Let's, uh, let's organise what we're going to do today. Today, outside Parliament House, there is a stop work meeting of, you know, every teacher in New South Wales storming the Parliament in Macquarie Street, Sydney. Fact. Full stop. So they, they've got this way of being able to articulate themselves very easily, and I can't. So, well, well I, I'm learning Generally, to... they're working to a script as well. I, I'm glad you said that, because I, I don't, and I'm, I'm really in awe of myself for being yes. able to remember all of these things yeah, when yeah. they do have a script. So, uh, I suppose, uh, yes. So, uh, the obsession with music in your teens must have really been quite powerful, because I understand you built a harpsichord. Yes. Now, a harpsichord is a kind of obscure instrument. Um, for those who don't know what that is, it's a keyboard instrument. It's a very custom-made instrument. It was the keyboard instrument around the Baroque period, which was around 1600, 1750. Mozart would have composed Mozart when he was young. Uh, and then he did the transition when he was 13 to, or between 9 and to the first piano, piano, which is called a forte piano, when the hammer was first introduced. So harpsichord works on a pluck system. So I met, um, I, I walked down the corridor because I reached the level I needed to be on the piano at the conservatorium when I was doing my post-undergraduate. Uh, at the end of the first year, they said, you've reached the level, high distinction, what are you going to do now? Uh, apart from all the, the general music subjects that we had to do. An education subject. So I went past this room and I heard this sound and I didn't know what it was but every time I walked down that corridor I would hear this sound. Eventually I, walked, I knocked on the door one day and I said excuse me I can hear that sound what is that and then uh, this man kind of looked at me strangely and then said come back in another time I'm busy teaching but you're welcome and then closed the door. So I went to my piano teacher and said to her, I've seen a very unusual instrument. And she said, what does it look like? And I described it. So she said, come into the front room of that Mossman rambling house. Right. And she opened the door. It was a massive room and had about eight keyboard instruments. They were all foreign to me. They were all unusual. They were all different shapes and sizes. It was like pieces of furniture that looked weird. And, and all wooden? All wooden, yeah. Um, I learned that they were spinets, clavichords, forte pianos, harpsichords, and that she was a visionary person and that she'd been collecting these. And she'd had one student who was a few years before me, so I didn't know him. And she said, my dear, I'm going to put you in this room and lock the door and come back in two hours. And I went, what? Anyway, she could feel that I would probably feel empathy towards these instruments. And so I, um, she closed the door and she didn't lock it. And, and I just went for an instrument like a child in a candy store, you know, really that feeling. And I tinkled on these things. And it was the feeling of touching a harpsichord keyboard was so different from the modern piano. It was like getting an electric shock for me, that feeling. And so I was in heaven because they were all strange. Like, really, really strange. If you go to a piano now, you know, there are certain models and makes. This was really different. Um, so I fell in love with the sound, and then I met a guy who had built one. And he was only about eight years older than me. So he said, I'll help you. We can get a kit from Boston. Um, so I built it in my lounge room. It wasn't really like put A to B and C to D. It wasn't Bunnings, you know, um, no, Ikea, you know, thing. it wasn't like that. Um, I even get frightened with that key every time you know I, I go past it because it's not like that at all. You really have to have a mind for that, putting a piece of furniture together. So I had a couple of people to help me who were carpenters, engineers and woodworkers. And and, um, and I built it in my parents' lounge room and it graced uh, all over Australia. It was a large instrument, played to 333 schools. Um, I counted everyone. Uh, it was a rather rich plum colour with gold leaf. Um, I loved it. Where is it now? Uh, actually, it's a bit of a sad story because I traded it in thinking I wanted a, a, an updated instrument from a fire maker in Melbourne by the name of Alistair McAllister. 
Uh, good Scottish Love name, it, yeah. awesome. And Alistair is is um, extraordinary as a, as a maker. He provides instruments from all all over the world, and he um, he took mine and said, "I'll I'll find a home for it," and he did. And years later, this girl rang me up with a very supercilious voice, and she said, "Paul Darren," I said, "Yes," and she said, "I hear you're coming to Ballarat, so." If you would like to give me five free lessons while you're here, I'll let you play your instrument. I went, no thanks, not interested. <laughs> I thought, Sorry for me to play the yeah. instrument that I. It was your baby. It was my baby. <laughs> <laughs> Bye. <laughs> but, that, but that says a lot about the artist that, that you could, um, you know, the instrument that you uh, are going, is going to be a big part yeah. of your life that yeah. you actually. Now know it intimately. Mm. Yeah, you know what makes it work, mm. how it works. Indeed. Um, I, it's like those mechanics who want to, you know, they, they pull cars apart yeah. and put them back together. Well, if you talk to um, classical musicians, you'll not so much the, the pianist, but people who play the violin, for example, or, or if they play an oboe or a clarinet or, or a French horn or trumpet, they're having to do mechanical things to the instrument all the time. But also, they love this thing. Um, you know, professional violinist Sean Lee Chen, who's the, the concertmaster of the Brandenburg, of the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra, he lives in Perth and he has a double case and uh, one for his Baroque violin and one for his classical instrument. Uh, both are very expensive and both cherished and loved. He spends more time with that instrument than his wife, I think. <laughs> you know, it's under his chin. Um, he knows it. He knows that the, when the wood moves. You know, it's really got a personality about it that... People find that hard to, to, to understand, but and especially, Peter, in my field, which is dealing with old instruments, instruments from 300 years ago or 400 years ago. So I often imagine, how did that instrument make it to Adelaide, for example, to someone's cupboard, and, you know, it went via Singapore, where it lived for a year, then from Poland, and then before that was in Hungary, and before that was in Germany, and before that was in, I don't know, France, or, you know, often they had, these instruments have tails yeah, to them. Yeah. So, for me to build my own instrument, uh, which is, a you know, obviously a modern instrument, I often think, I wonder what, where that instrument will go in the next... 200 years will it be still what, what, what will the story yeah, be what will the story be will mm. it ever escape Ballarat <laughs> <laughs> the clutches of that young harpsichordist uh, you bring up an interesting point with the the, music, the instruments that you use in the orchestra um, very expensive yeah. period instruments mm-hmm. how do you acquire them and, and do the musicians own their own instruments yeah and, very good and, question uh, you know as an artist, how do you afford instruments? At yeah. the of that price? So very early on, I remember when I started the orchestra in 1990 at the Sydney Opera House, I went to the, the then general manager and sat over his table and asked him whether he would give me a gig and say, I'm going to start a national orchestra uh, of friends. They don't know how to play these instruments at the moment. There will be all violins, violas, cellos, bass, plus two oboes and two flutes and recorders, and then some people like myself who play unusual instruments like the harpsichord. I was very passionate then, as I am now, and I convinced him that it that he would launch us at that concert of the Mostly Mozart in January 1990. What I did was, prior to that, I'd been doing my postgraduate degree in Holland in The Hague, which is the kind of mecca for period instrument uh, practitioners around the world. Nowadays, it's branched off to, you know, France, Germany, everywhere. There's, you know, it has a different course. But in those days, that was the kind of mecca. And people would come from all over the world. In my degree, they accepted seven people from around the world. And I, I I was one of those seven. And I learned about period instruments in that, that period that I was there. So when I came back to the to to launch the opera house and uh, launch the orchestra in the opera house, I then enlisted four people: two violins, a viola, and a cello, to help me train the Australians. Uh, they were Dutch and Japanese players, and I managed to go to the managing director of of Lufthansa, who that when they used to fly to Australia beg him for some money for a couple of flights. I went to 
Japan Airlines went and, and got a couple of flights from there. You know, I had the thing. I was able to go to Wolfgang Grimm, who was the then general manager of Intercontinental, and say, you know, you're German, you get it, you understand. I need to fly musicians in from all over Australia. We'll billet them, but these guests, I need to put them somewhere. Can you put them up in your lovely hotel? Sure, it's just down the road from your house. That's a lot of chutzpah. Yeah, I was, I was really <laughs> gunning it in those days. In fact, I remember, an, just off, off track just for a second, I remember another lovely moment where... Somebody suggested I had to have a board, um, and and they gave me the advice: go to this woman. Her name is Gillian Broadbent, and Gillian now, of course, is Reserve Bank board head. She was head executive bankers trust in those days, and and many many eminent um, positions in in banking and finance, and and helping Australia uh, be a, a better country. Awesome woman, uh, but I remember going to see her, and she was in a glass room on the trading floor of Bankers Trust and there were 300 men in front of her and she was in the glass box controlling all of them. And I, so there were these wonderful moments of time where I where I, I thought, now I'll swing it back to your question, which was, you know, the, the start of the orchestra and the period instruments and how that all works. I said to Julian and I said to Bruce, who was the general manager of the company or the manager in those days, I need to, we need to have gut strings because the, the, the instruments that we have in the orchestra aren't modern instruments. They don't have steel strings or soft iron strings. They, they work on sheep's gut strings. Which and that's a very different sound. Indeed. Yeah. Very raw sound and very kind of more nasally sound and, and softer sound. Um, but the gut had to come from somewhere in the world. So and it wasn't New Zealand from sheep. Um, so we had to get that, that strings and I remember being in the opera house for that very rehearse, first rehearsal and one of my old teachers Richard Gill who was a very famous uh, musician and educator in, in Australia arrived uh, and he said Paulie I'm here for the birth and I said you're going to be here for a long time because we're sitting in the whole length of what was the reception hall in the Sydney Opera House and we were cutting up gut on the floor to put as strings on the instruments with the help of these Japanese and uh, musicians from Holland. So the, the instruments that then we had, uh, we had at the beginning of time were hybrid instruments of something we thought were closest to Baroque instruments. And then over time I said to the board, we need to have a fundraising campaign to, to commission makers to make copies of Baroque instruments for the orchestra. We did that, and they are part of the orchestra to this day. We're obviously, we've upgraded, and, and you know we're into the category where most players currently in the orchestra have their own, pretty well, 100% now, have their own instruments, and they've taken it to the next level. And, and also, the expertise of craftsmen in this particular industry has, has gotten higher and higher for period Baroque instruments in the world. Wow. Studying in The Hague, I suppose, is that where you're germinating the idea of the orchestra? Most definitely. To come back to Australia and start? At the time I wasn't. I was planning to go to Europe, do this degree, study with a very, very fine keyboardist, uh, and then learn. And my mission to myself was to sit and learn from every other teacher in that conservatorium. So I offered my services to accompany singers, to accompany uh, violinists, clarinetists, horn players, sackbut players, um, poetry readers, drama theatre, opera school. I was, I, was, I was a whore with that conservatorium. I just wanted to learn so much yeah. about these instruments because I was from Australia. Yeah. And we had this whole idea that everyone was better than us that we were in this continent by ourselves and we had to fly a long distance to get there. And then I realised that wasn't the case at all, that we were, like, top of our, you know, game, that we were very... Because of our protection, protected nature of the country, uh, our, I think that helped us, helps us view the rest of the world in a different way. Yeah. Who are your musical heroes? And have you been able to meet them along Oh, the gosh, that's a really interesting... Uh, question heroes 
do you mind if I change the question around a little sure, bit? Sure, I can ask you a different one. Yeah, it was more about heroes of my journey, because um, I don't actually have musical heroes that. Yes, uh, yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm not necessarily talking about uh, Mozart or Bach uh, uh, or anyone yeah, like that. I, I was actually, but yeah. mentors, teachers, mm. or, or musicians that you admire. There are lots of musicians that I've admired, um, but probably the people that I've learnt a lot from or or admired uh, are in two areas. My very early career as being an artistic director and founder of of this organisation led me to understand a lot about other people and their their worlds. Julian, one of those people, all the different eminent people have, have touched the Brandenburg. One of them was James Strong, um, who was who was a I, I, he came along to concerts at the very start of my career uh, with the Brandenburg and continued and eventually became a chairman. His wife I went flying with last Saturday, uh, you know, in, in, in her four-seater plane. Um, <clears throat> people that have been really visionary or high-end experts in their particular field and, and there have been many other chairmen of my board or board members that I've learned so much from. But I suppose I wanted to swing it round, Peter, to other people. Um, chefs, I'm a great fan of many chefs in Sydney. Um, my latest uh, greatest friend is Luke Mangan, and Luke is a profound person and chef. And we met on a train. He he makes a joke about that when we when we when we're together in front of the public, saying. I met Paul. I would like to introduce you to Paul Diamond. One on one, we met on a train. You know, it starts a real <laughs> narrative. And you know, I'm in awe of people like that. Yeah. Kylie Kwong, another one. You know, yeah. I, I know all of these amazing people who are experts in creation and and or experts in the field: engineers, mathematicians, physicists, university chancellors. You know, governors. You know, but people on the street, like Pete, there were so many wonderful people in this earth. So to answer your question is quite hard. Uh, in terms of musical mentors, because there are, everyone around me is a wonderful musician, uh, and, and and everyone in the world that I haven't got access to, I'm sure they're wonderful musicians too. Tell me about the the launch of the Brandenburg Orchestra at the Opera House. That that initial concert. Yeah. Describe that for me. What? So, two important things happened. This first launch of the of the orchestra in the Sydney Opera House. Um, I'd performed on the Sydney Opera House stage before. As a soloist? And no, as a member of a, another orchestra or team. So it wasn't, you know, I'd been a, a member of a group on that. So I was familiar with the stage and backstage. So that wasn't so daunting. But to be the leader on that stage, that was something else. To walk out and have 2,623 people in that audience full capacity for the launch of a new brand new thing and for all of them at the end of the concert to stand and the standing ovation of 2006 you know as I said that many people was just incredible so to my colleagues I wanted to you know I love sharing the stage I don't do the conductor thing of just do a, a solo bow it's about the team for me so we all bowed together and then I did a single bow and then I walked off and then I collapsed on the side of the stage because uh, I hadn't eaten in days right. um, and I was so excited and Bruce was standing on the... I'm getting emotional just thinking about yeah. it. But yeah. <laughs> Bruce was just standing on the side, side of the stage and he knew from his stage management and his drama career and his performing career what it was. He raced to the great green room, which was a matter of about eight steps. I grabbed a piece of some sugar and then threw it down. I missed the next two bows. Um, and then people were screaming and cheering and stamping and I made the last bow. Uh, uh, so it was very... Um, it was brilliant. I, I remember two things about being in the conductor's dressing room, which was obviously a very important room in, 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 the, in the building of the mm -hmm. Sydney Opera House with all these incredibly eminent people that have been in that room for a certain period of time as guests. 
and there was a fridge and a grand piano and a view over Sydney Harbour and my mother and father came in my mother threw down a fridge and said darling this is luxurious and she opened the opened the fridge and started to pour something and I said maybe we have to pay you know <laughs> you check, when you check out yeah so it was a really um, amazing occasion but the the artist Bruce said a very important thing to me he said in your programming for this very first concert um I said, I want to do a Brandenburg Concerto because that's our namesake. But uh, the other important thing is, he said, you need to have a big name. Nobody knows who you are. Nobody's interested in you. Nobody's interested in the Brandenburg. You need to have a star. Um, so, and you're not it, and the orchestra isn't it. So find somebody. I can suggest somebody. Uh, and so I engaged four singers, two sopranos, a bass, uh, sorry, a soprano, uh, two sopranos, a bass and an alto. The very first one was a, um, Elizabeth Campbell, who currently lives in, in, in um, Adelaide in South Australia, a beautiful mezzo-soprano. Uh, Yvonne Kenny, uh, who of course went on to, at that time already had a career in Berlin, France, yeah. you name it, yeah. around the world. She was, you know, the next Joan Sutherland. Um, Yvonne, as she's, is, is, as she's known to us she currently lives in London and then commutes out to Australia uh, Jeffrey Black who is a wonderful a bass baritone and then uh, Jennifer Bates who is a very pure uh, person that I've worked with from then on so that was an important ingredient to have somebody who was known in the musical community in the arts fabric of, of, of Sydney I guess they're, they're, they're singing having an opportunity to sing repertoire that they wouldn't normally sing correct I mean, Yvonne was a bit different because she she was aligned to Sir Charles McCarris and he was very big in Prague. Um, after the there was a very famous movie of Mozart called um, um, Amadeus. Amadeus, yeah, and he did all the music for that and conducted the orchestra for that. Uh, and so he he worked a lot in in Prague and and the Czechoslovakia and. The, the more Eastern um, European countries. And then, of course, London, Covent Garden, he was the big conductor there, and English National Opera. So he, he, Yvonne was singing that a lot of that repertoire with him. The others less so. Uh, so it was a chance for them to sing repertoire that they otherwise wouldn't be singing. Your concerts have a great theatricality. <laughs> you, you obviously feel that, as well as the oral experience, it needs to be a, a visual experience as well for the audience. Yeah. Is, is that something that you have in mind? Yeah, it was a really good um, observation, Peter. I think, for me, a couple of things. When I was brought up, my parents were great um, party givers and fundraisers. They were in their spare time for every charity that I could possibly imagine. And so we were brought, my brother and sister and I were brought out to play in front of people since we were very young. But I remember these colourful parties of people coming and being very, very fabulous, you know. Um, and so I think that kind of had something to my my upbringing. And then I remember being fascinated with my brother and sister on a Friday and Saturday night when mum and dad would say, you know, our, our day as a family unit would cease and then they'd say, we're going out, we're working tonight and the babysitter will arrive. And we'd go into mum's room and she had three mirrors and she'd sit doing her face up like she was about to go and do a movie, you know. And then she had beads hanging everywhere and she had a dressmaker and she was standing on the on, on the seat while the dressmaker did hems and and um a lot of the a lot of the when mum died, a lot of the materials and frocks that she used to wear and everything I donated to to um, to a, a group who provide a lot of um, clothing, I suppose, to theatre and cinema and, and film sets in in Sydney. Um, and the next time I saw one of these outfits that I donated was when my sister went ABC Television now. So I switched on. <laughs> there's Carlotta, the the movie of Carlotta, the the documentary yeah. wearing mum's outfits. Yeah. So you know it was. So you could see that that kind of colour infiltrated me from an early stage. But also there's um, another important scholarly aspect of the music that I do comes from the Baroque period. The concert halls didn't exist 
was people's homes, it was the court, um, it was these theatrical moments where people didn't even listen to the music. They were eating or they were cooking up a storm or they were being naughty, you know, behind a pillar or, you know, it was very, it was part of the fabric of the of the day, of this period where where theatre and, and the sense of um, mask and, and, and drama was part of the daily life of everyone. Fabulous. You've embraced the online platform as well with the introduction of Brand Boo One, mm. uh, a great way to reach a further audience also. Uh, um, nationally but yes. also globally yes yeah. globally it's been very interesting uh, we, we were absolutely shocked and this started during the early part of the pandemic here in, in Australia um, and gradually when we were allowed to have just one person I started a kind of one per, one musician I invited a, a very uh, amazing designer who's who's been Baz Luhrmann's designer with Catherine Martin all, for all his movies and his operas and everything, uh, still uh, recently with Elvis as well, um, and that's Silvana Aziharas. And Silvana designed um, a back uh, a series of wallpapers for for me for every musician, as there would be a solo person on an LED screen behind, which was kind of embracing the technology. That has now reached. We then went on to then eventually go onto the ho- the concert hall stage without audiences. And then now, uh, of course, with audiences, we're able to, to use that platform. But it's reached um, in, the, in 110 countries to date, from the Pacific right through to Nigeria, right through to you know African countries, to, to Venezuela, to you. Know, and we've got a, we've got data on every one of those countries and how many wow. people are listening, and it's very uh, interesting data. So. The, the online platform has been really interesting. The other important feature about we were surprised is the demographic. So the people who are listening to our music, uh, about 26% of the listeners at the moment are between the ages of 18 and 29. Now that was a shock. Wow. So That's it's all to do with the, you know, who would have thought classical young people who have been listening to to an our um, streaming service of or online platform, but it's to do with technology. Um, is there any part of your work which has helped raise the awareness of Baroque music? There are two special moments I remember uh, that may answer that question. The first was I had a call from a producer of the James Bond movie at the time, which was not the one that's recently come out in the last year, but the movie Spectra. And it was the, the producer who rang me up and said, hi, Paul, you don't know me, I'm so-and-so. Um, we'd like to use a track of your uh, of a CD that you've done some years ago on the James Bond movie. And I said, excuse me, is this a prank call? <laughs> um, and what's funny about it is that when I, when I learned what track he wanted, it made sense straight away. So it's probably the only emotional m- moment in the whole movie um, when Monica Bellucci is, is in her home and she's just been to the funeral of her husband who was, a, who was assassinated. And she pours a double scotch, puts it down on the table, takes off her fur, throws it down on the bed, goes out to the to her villa in Rome. She opens the doors to, to this palatial patio and she knows she's going to be assassinated. And two men go with the gun and then James Bond arrives and saves her. And then, of course, you know what's going to happen next. Uh, and so all through that is is a beautiful, one of the most wonderful colleagues of my life, which is a man called Andreas Scholl, who's a singer, a countertenor uh, f- from Germany. And he, he was singing on that city and he was the one who asked whether uh, he could have the Australians, he could have any orchestra in the world and he chose us wow. and chose me. So we were Decca, uh, um, released on Decca. And so millions of people have seen that movie and heard Andreas and heard the Brandenburg and heard Vivaldi. And then the second one was Funnily enough, exactly the same track six months later before it was released or known for a Bollywood movie. So literally millions of people in India have heard that yeah. track of Vivaldi. And so I kind of feel like 
and it's not the Four Seasons. So, you know, it's another one of Vivaldi's 300 and something works that have helped raise the profile of Baroque music in, in the world and people to understand that actually many of the television commercials that they see on television have it's the a, music a luxury car ad. Or yeah, indeed, indeed. <laughs> so there we have it. James Bond, thank you very much. Um, audiences have a wonderful opportunity to listen to the Brandenburg Live. You've got six live concerts happening in your 2022 season. Mm -hmm. Tell me about them. Yes. Um, so I kind of have a map for the next 10 years that I've just completed today. Uh, and it, it goes in the form of a, a development a series of things that I want to kind of put in place. Um, so that I leave the Brandenburg in with succession in a really good way by the end of that period. And there's a kind of a roadmap to see what I want to to bring to Australian audiences in the world. So um, in particular next year, um, I'm starting the year with a, a wonderful Canadian-American cellist. Uh, and then I've called this, uh, I won't go into it now, but it's called Spanish Steps. And it was, the, it was taking music from Italy in, with one composer who was born in Italy but spent most of his career in Spain. And so I had this idea, how can I link those two together? And I suddenly thought, in the Baroque period, the famous Spanish steps that everyone knows, like the Trivi Fountain or you know, the Colosseum or yeah. any of those places in, in, in Rome, uh, when you go to the Spanish steps and walk down the stairs, the Spanish ambassador in the Baroque period lived at the base of the stairs, and that was the reason they were called the Spanish Steps. Oh. And so I thought, what a great way of having a cellist. And the composer is Boccherini. Boccherini played the cello, and so I'm bringing this, this French-Canadian uh, cellist out to Australia who's an amazing young practitioner. So she's really, she's cool, she's really, you know, strutting the stage in, in the kind of her, her native era, kind of thing. So I'm linking those and then I've got a wonderful uh, graduate from some years ago from NIDA to design a set of red stairs. I wanted high gloss red stairs to be the backdrop because I'm really sick of the concert hall. Mm -hmm. I get really sick of going into the same space. I know it's an acoustic issue but I, I love to change the, the, the idea that someone could dream when they're listening to the music and see things. Yeah. I'm a very visually you know orientated person as you probably realize when I go to the cinema, I go on fire, you know, looking at stuff, or go to the theater, I go, oh, can I have that? Or, you know, can I do something similar to that? So that's the first one. Um, later in the year, I've got a wonderful, it's the kind of young generation, I've got a wonderful French um, Baroque violinist. His name is Théotim Longrois de Soit. How's that for a French name? <laughs> um, and he does a lot of work with um, action painters, uh, so here's the kind of creme de la creme of young people working in that arena of classical period work as a violinist. Um, there are many other different, I've got a forte pianist coming from Paris um, to play classical, playing Mozart. And we've got a huge education project. We've got a, hopefully by then we might be back to the retirement villages to do the work that we do in Victoria and New South Wales to bring music to, to people who are you know, over a certain age group. And um, I love to embrace all of those communities. Oh, one of the big things that I've got next year, and I'll be there in, in a couple of weeks' time, is that I'm bringing um, a very interesting group of mystical people from Turkey. And they are the Sufi whirling dervishes with their musicians. So I'm bringing eight dervishes, which is is a, a very, uh, it's a ceremony that comes out of the, the Sufi religion, which is a branch of Muslim. Um, and it came, it started in the 13th century with a man called Rumi, who was a poet and scholar and musician who used to go into trance um, when he touched the sky and touched the earth and then turn, circular turn, wearing a dress, a very you know traditional yeah. Turkish dress and which flower out. Oh, and then, so I'm bringing all of them out to Australia to do an Ottoman uh, Baroque program with, with European Brandenburg Australian musicians and fuse it all together. So, and there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of work I'm doing with Alana Valentine, a wonderful 
Um, you know, she works in, in theatre. Playwright. Uh, yep. pl- the playwright. She's written a script for Notre Dame for me that we, we were going to present two years ago, but the pandemic hit. So that's the story of Notre Dame and the music that's been heard in Notre Dame from the beginning of its existence yep. um, right to now. So there's a lot of really beautiful um, programming for next year. Oh, and there's one special one, um, which will kick off the year, which for us is December, and that's the Indigenous artist, um, singer Marcus Kuroa. And Marcus, um, I worked with some years ago, he was very young at the time, and he's a, a kind of pop singer who's out there. So I, I really like to infuse classical with other kind of mediums so that I'm less pure these days. I'm much more global. What's the routine that you go through on opening night? Or, or, or for a performance? Mm. Do, do you like to get to the theatre early? And... Yes, I do. Um, I have a ritual for every performance. And if I can manage it and I'm in the right city, in the right place. But in Australia, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have a dressing room which has a shower. And I learned that, you know, no theatre and yes, Japanese theatre. Yeah, so when they put on mask and they, they take away their ego and they, they have a ritual of putting on the mask and going through uh, this whole, um, you know, preparation, preparation yeah. time. Uh, I, I like to go through that. It's very last minute with me because I love to be as wet, let's say, as possible minutes before I go on stage. So the poor stage manager is in agony because then I'm rushing to get a shirt or and I can't do what my buttons or I forgot my cufflinks or I've left my underpants at home or oh this sh- or shoes. Oh shit, I forgot my black shirts. Um, you know, or something. So there's always a bit of a panic. But I love the last minute rush. Um, we often will do a uh, a dress on the day of the concert because we can't afford generally to get into the hall before then. Um, because the halls are always booked and they're quite expensive to be in. So often the dress rehearsal will be on the day of the concert in the morning, which means the lighting technician, the sound, you know, everything's kind of very fast pace. But you'd have it down to a fine art now, I imagine. Yes, and it feels the same, Peter, as it did in 1990. Exactly the same. I don't feel, I feel that rush and energy exactly the same way. So strange. Well, congratulations and, and, and thank you for the orchestra. I'm sure Australia is very grateful for having such an orchestra on our, uh, on our, uh, um, in our territories. Um, it's been wonderful chatting to you and thank you for your, uh, your story. Pleasure, Peter. Thanks for having me. The Australian Brandenburg Orchestra 2022 season is a diverse program of six live concert series performed at Sydney's City Recital Hall and Melbourne Recital Centre. The season embraces the drama and passion of Baroque and will see the Australian Brandenburg Orchestra perform alongside leading Australian and international musicians. Throughout the year, the Brandenburg will also release concert films on their innovative digital platform, Brandenburg One. Tickets are now on sale. You can check out the complete program at www.brandenburg.com.au. Many thanks to our guest today on stages, Paul Dyer. Thanks for joining us in this episode. You can check out all of the episodes featured in the podcast thus far by visiting our website, www.stagespodcast.com.au. I'm Peter Eyers. Keep well, keep warm, stay safe. And I'll catch you next time on Stages.